You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 30th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Burley. Coming up over the next 60 minutes here from Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich, my guest today, Emily Isahau and Christoph Munger. They're both here to share, of course, their views, their takes on the big stories of the week. Emily, you're here. Uh, what have you seen this morning? So the new Swedish Prime Minister visits Helsinki as his first official state visit. And in a unrelated news between Finland and Sweden, um, the Swedish Foreign Minister announces that they will do away with the feminist foreign policy. And one week later, the Finnish Foreign Minister announces a conference on feminist foreign policy in Helsinki. Okay, we'll be unpacking that. We're also going to be heading to Tokyo to hear from Fiona Wilson. Hello, this is Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be dialing in with the latest from Tokyo. And then the editor-in-chief of Israel's Haaretz newspaper, Aleph Ben, will be telling us what's happening over there. And we'll have the latest about the elections in Brazil. Plus, we'll find out about, of course, the Helsinki's book fair as well. It's the 30th of October, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning, as you probably already heard, beautiful, beautiful uh, Sunday here in Zurich. Sort of feels like the last hurrah of summer, as we know, and as you've heard on this program, sort of a bit of a washout uh, for September, but it's absolutely gorgeous today. Uh, it's going to be a bit of lake time as soon as we're uh, off air. I'm very happy to say that uh, Emily Isahau is here, of course, regular voice of the program, program coordinator for peace mediation uh, at Eteha here in Zurich, and also Christoph Munger. He runs the foreign desk at the Tagus Anzeiger. And listeners, if you're not familiar with the Tagus Anzeiger, is one of the German language newspapers of record in this country. Because it's very nice to see you uh, back here. Lots Thank of you. stories to go through, but I think we should actually cut right to the main story, uh, which is seems to be when I look at everything uh, in in the Swiss domestic press today. This excitement about this train, the uh, the Rätische Bahn, that they were able to have this uh, this this train coupling together uh, multiple red wagons and engines uh, to to break a world record for the longest ever passenger train. Yeah, I mean the picture really looked impressive, and and the journey, as you as you mentioned before, is really it's it's a great journey. I've done that before also a couple of times, and, and every time it's just great to 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 look through the window and and, and see everything. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really amazing that uh, some people spend a whole day, probably much more. But it's a big question of organization to put all these coaches together. I think seven uh, seven. Full like train sets or something. Seven yeah. engines they yeah. had, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I just imagine how do they decouple everything after the, the world record? That must be also quite difficult. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of other train spotters who are also very equally excited about that. Emily, I assume you've done this journey um, up through Graubund and, of course, taking the the, the Ration Railway. I have, and it's ex- extremely beautiful. Not this record-winning one, of course, <laughs> but uh, no, it's great. And actually, we're just um, welcoming our students at ETH for the next three weeks, again in Switzerland, um, starting tomorrow. So we'll be heading this time towards Luzern. Uh, but nonetheless, a beautiful train ride as well. And it's, it's amazing because this is also at the World Heritage site. It's, it's, it's UNESCO-sanctioned. And in these times of, of austerity in so many corners of the world, 
when you take that journey, you still have to ask yourself, would this ever happen? Would would today, would someone say, we're going to go and drill holes through mountains and build something this complex? You know, especially when you think about the taxpayer today, the the backlash, even if, okay, yes, rail, railroads are in fashion, but I just think if you put that engineering exercise in today's terms, I, I think it's, it's, it's very difficult, difficult to no. imagine. It's very difficult to imagine uh, um, because there's not just one hole. You go through the Alps as, as, the, uh, as the, the, the latest tunnel. It's a lot of uh, small tunnels with curves and everything. It's it's like a, it's like a big toy within the Alps, actually. <laughs> no, it is, and, and and for all of those reasons, uh, I think why it got UNESCO uh, status as well. Um, I also want to bring in uh, say good afternoon to our Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief uh, in Tokyo. Someone else who's also familiar uh, with that journey uh, more than once as well. Good morning, Fiona. Hi, Tyler. Uh, thoughts and reflections. I think the last time uh, you were on that, there was sort of, I recall, sort of open windows and 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 flapping blonde hair. That would be yours, by the way. Maybe a drink in hand as well. <laughs> My usual stance. Is that what you're driving at? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. And I have to say, a beautiful day in Tokyo, too. Absolutely stunning today. So good to hear the sunshine uh, going all over the world. Because you were sending pictures last week. You were were down. uh, And I'm not sure if Japan has the same feeling at the moment uh, as as well when it moves into those wonderful crisp autumns. And of course, the last time we spoke on this program, the doors uh, and the borders had just been thrown uh, open to the country. Did you have any sense of uh, being down in Hayama last week and certainly this past week in Tokyo uh, of the arrival of, of, I would say, official tourists now. Well, interestingly, so Hayama, when I was down at the beach and I was sending you photos, it was absolutely gorgeous, really sunny. It was really a local crowd. You know, you've always got the people there who are windsurfing, walking dogs. It didn't feel like tourists had hit Hayama yet. But Tokyo, on the other hand, I mean, it's like a light switch has just come on. It's remarkable. In a couple of weeks, it is absolutely packed. Everywhere you go, every coffee shop every department store is is uh, full of tourists now very good news for business uh, not so so great for us trying to get our coffees at our local uh, coffee shop but uh, no it's absolutely dramatic i mean you can see that people were just itching to come back and they, they've come back immediately well i hope uh, camelback is not too overrun but it sounds like it. Fiona, so who's there so we know obviously very difficult uh, of course with the with the borders and very difficult for of course the chinese uh, to travel but if we look is it is it really sort of seeing uh, the Thais, Singaporeans, uh, Aussies, Americans, who's showing up? Or is it or is it everybody? Yeah, I think all of the above. I mean, certainly, I mean, incredibly international crowds, certainly seeing a lot of, um, I'm seeing a lot of Koreans and, I, and I'm hearing a lot of Chinese being spoken. So if they're not from mainland China, um, you know, Taiwanese, um, Hong Kong, I hear from James, a lot of people from Hong Kong heading to uh Tokyo. So yeah, I think it's it's a very very international crowd, and obviously the people who've come are the one you know they know what they want. The the the, the early uh, arrivals that they're, they're very much keen. They're shopping, they're they're Instagramming themselves absolutely everywhere. It, it's quite hard not to find yourself in the back of a selfie, um, pretty much anywhere you go at the moment. So yes, I can imagine it's going to get busier and busier. I can only imagine what uh, Cherry Blossom 2023 will look like. Uh, Fiona, we were talking about the region uh, as well. And as we just uh, moved, of course, talk about uh, the morning's uh, main stories uh, as well. Obviously, uh, very 
uh, tragic, ugly scenes uh, out of the streets of Itaewon uh, overnight, uh, at least uh, certainly from from a European perspective, uh, with this crush of of over 150 dead, uh, some 80 people injured. How's that story playing, of course, uh, in in Japan, but also what you're seeing in the the Jungong or the Korean Times or or other outlets uh, today? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely shocking, isn't it, to see those scenes? And it's interesting. Yeah, obviously, it's all over the Japanese press. Absolutely, you know, blanket coverage in the Korean media. You know, people are starting to, you know, obviously the the, the tragedy recounting that, but also starting to ask a few questions. Number one, could it have been avoided? I mean, the, the crowds and, you know, this was all over social media, these people on their phones filming and you could see them filming and you could see this crush. It was an accident waiting to happen. Clearly, I have you know, it was completely out of control, the crowd. Um, so I think there are big questions to be asked. The interior minister is very keen to say nothing could have been done. It was a voluntary event. Nobody was organising it. Therefore, nobody can be asked to take responsibility. But, you know, it, it, it's a bit hard to see that when you know that Halloween in Seoul and in Tokyo has become this massive event. And, you know, very much on the minds of people in Tokyo. I was in Shibuya last night and, you know, Shibuya crossing well, Tyler, there were thousands of people out, but there were also police in massive numbers. I mean, you could hardly hear yourself talk because the megaphone's telling you not to stand still, keep moving, don't hang around the crossing, don't film yourself on that big famous crossing. Uh, they were very keen not to let crowds gather. Quite difficult given the numbers, but they'd also, they also had security people on the back streets to keep people moving. And it's funny because at the time, this is just a few hours before the Seoul incident. At the time, it struck me as a little bit heavy handed. You know, I'm there with my children and this this very big police presence seemed quite um, quite over the top. But, you know, given events in Seoul, you can see the anxiety about these these huge crowds. And I think particularly after so long of not being able to have these events, um, I think there, there was always that potential danger, which they certainly spotted in Tokyo. And it's from a, I guess, looking a little bit ahead, but also back, of course, there's been this big story as well about great crowds gathering along the Han River on any sort of given Sunday when the sun is out. And, and of course, we were carrying a story this week as to whether they will ban smoking, whether they should, of course, be banning alcohol as well. This will go to uh, it'll go to the people, of course, in Seoul. We'll see what, of course, happens at, at City Hall. But it then brings up this issue of, of again, of civil, liberty, civil liberties. And you sort of mentioned this mm. notion, OK, maybe Tokyo looked a little bit heavy handed. And of course, on one side, how much can you plan for this? But as you said, at the same time, Seoul has become a magnet, as has Tokyo globally, for people to to fly in for events like this. And I think you know we were already seeing some reports this morning that they thought there were going to be protests elsewhere in Seoul. So that's why there were, of course, there was a, a bigger deployment of, of police and security personnel to another part of the city, which was why maybe, of course, the eye was taken off the ball in, in Itaewon as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing that. Um, but also, you know, looking at Tokyo, what they did around Shibuya Crossing was that all the convenience stores, their alcohol cupboards were closed up. They weren't selling alcohol. Um, and again, I was thinking, gosh, this is a bit extreme. You know, as you know, Tokyo, very law abiding. But in fact, in 2018, a very small, unruly crowd had overturned a van. I don't know if you remember that event. And it so shocked people in Tokyo. It was a mix. It was a group of students from all over the place. And I don't think, you know, they were completely shocked in Tokyo. So they were taking no uh, chances this time. I mean, I think there is an issue about civil liberties. Of course, you know, a sunny evening by the Han River, you would expect people to gather. I think Halloween has become, 
it's a bit like New Year's Eve. It's become one of these magnets that really has to be controlled, uh, you know, because the numbers and they couldn't really have known, I suppose, exactly how the crowd would move. But, you know, those back streets of Itaewon are, you know, if you just look at a map, they're very, very tiny. You've got a hill going down. So, of course, if people are pushing at one end, the people at the bottom, um, you know, were going to be in trouble. So there were, you know, some red flags. But I think the uh, recrimination time uh, is, you know, that will all come. I think at the moment, everyone's just sort of stunned, really. Fiona, I want to bring in uh, Christoph here, because, of course, Christoph, you've run the, the, the foreign desk and, and so many of the images uh, that, that we saw, uh, of course, in news outlets everywhere came from social media, uh, a lot of them with warnings on them. Uh, what you're about to see, uh, of course, uh, it, it's distressing. I'm just wondering, what is the code now? Because it, we're, we're in a very different time and it's not a new time. This, this has been with us for a while. Uh, but how does the Tagus Anzeiger deal with something like this when you have, of course, a rolling breaking story? Um, and how you observe, of course, what is a news story, but what is also seen as 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 appropriate for your audience. Yeah, I mean, they, they have to cover that, of course. And uh, there is a correspondent there uh, also based in Tokyo. And uh, I'm sure he's about to write about these this, this events. And uh, it, of course, it comes uh, by social media first. And we have a social media desk too. They, they see that. And and if if they see something like that, of course, it's a bit more difficult because it was over the weekend. But uh, they, they are there and they, they give us a warning and they say, watch out, there is something coming, something getting big and bigger and then we we of course we we, we look at it and, and then there is more coverage than than without this social media initiation mm. Fiona just uh, going going back to of course other um, other news uh, of, of the day as you said uh, interesting I just want to maybe reflect also on on the mood in Japan as, as you've said maybe difficult uh, to, to suddenly have the surge of tourists uh, but you know if you're picking up the Nikkei if you're reading the Yomiuri Shimbun uh, how how is the opening going so far because you you know when, when you think about obviously a lot of people were very very comfortable about it but now does it feel a little bit normal and already getting back into rhythm after a few weeks yeah, I think I think it's already feeling quite normal. It's funny, isn't it, how we had so long of this sort of isolation and very quickly it, it becomes quite familiar. Um, I mean, you know how busy it was in, in Tokyo before COVID. So, yeah, I, I think actually people are certainly businesses are welcoming it. And then now it's more a case of adapting to these these sort of new numbers and already places that I was staying in that were offering very good deals. Those deals are all finished. You know, prices have gone up accordingly. Um, you know, and there is this big domestic travel campaign uh, to encourage Japanese to travel around as well. So there's a feeling, you know, that transport, I think, you know, you, you have to remember, it affected everybody, you know, these amazing trains that go around Japan, you know, it was a, it was a nightmare for them, be, them being so empty. So I think, you know, in many ways, people are relieved. I think there's always going to be a bit of concern. And I spoke to someone who said, oh, I'm really worried about the fact that people don't wear masks um, overseas. Now that discussion goes on but I think even that will sort of slowly dissipate. There is slight concern about this new variant, but I mean, I feel like there's always going to be a new variant. Um, but this new variant that's popped up in Singapore and has now popped up here in a few cases. So that's going to be a bit of concern. But I think overall, I feel like people are, you know, they feel there's a nice energy and, they're, you know, it's, it's nice to see um, restaurants busy and, and the streets busy again. 
Uh, just before we go, how much jockeying do we see uh, as, as the country opens up between the prefectures? Uh, as you know, there's a lot of prefectural coordination between the regions in Japan. There's also a lot of competition. Uh, maybe all lies on Tokyo because, of course, it is, is the main hub. Uh, but um, where are people heading and, and how, are, how are regions presenting themselves? And maybe is one particular region trying to sort of come across as, as the prettiest and most welcoming? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's an interesting one. I mean, you, you know, there's this amazing uh, brand survey that they do every year, which is about prefectural brands, which are the places in Japan that other Japanese would like to go to. And it's I always find it really interesting. Mostly, it's pretty obvious. Number one, interestingly, is Hokkaido in the far north. It's incredibly popular for Japanese visitors. I think mostly because it just feels a bit different. It's not like the rest of Japan. Obviously, it's colder in the winter, but, you know, the, the vegetation's a bit different. You see dairy cows, you see fields of lavender, different kind of food. Uh, people love the seafood there, obviously, as well. But, you know, Hokkaido one, Kyoto, Okinawa, you know, you'd expect them. Um, it's a challenge. I, w- I was very sad to see Saga came bottom because that's one of the places I, I really think is a fantastic place to visit. So I would say to uh, foreign travellers, don't look at the uh, the Japan brand survey and make up your own mind. <laughs> Go straight to Saga. It's a great place in Kyushu with uh, fantastic things to see. And Arita, which is an amazing place to see porcelain being made. So um, I think priorities for Japanese travellers is often about food. So Hokkaido and its wonderful seafood does very well. And we should say, um, of course, full disclosure, your desk mate is from Saga. So you you, you would have to fly that prefectural (laughs) flag as well, I think. Tyler, you've exposed me there. Yeah, Jun would absolutely kill me if I didn't big up a saga. But no, genuinely, I really like it. It's always interesting that people are often being encouraged to go to the same places. And I think that's such a shame about Japan. I love Kyoto. I love Okinawa. But there are so many really fantastic places that don't get much attention. And, um, you know, I often direct people to those uh, places, maybe on their second or third visit. This is the advanced Japan trip. And they're amazed what you can see. And and to be honest, in, in relative peace at the moment, you'd be, I think Kyoto, I hear, is already rammed. So people will be looking for those quiet corners again, I think. Very good. Well, um, mouthwatering already because uh, I'm counting the days and I will be seeing you, of course, uh, in a couple of week time, a couple of weeks time. That's uh, our Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief uh, for us in Tokyo. Just gone at 1021 here in Zurich. Uh, Christoph, you've got the, the pages open. Your highlighter is out. There's a lot of things we're going to look at. One of the stories that we've, of course, been seeing there's an ongoing discussion about neutrality, Switzerland's place uh, in in the world and what this means for a new Switzerland. Uh, and then, of course, across the border, we ha- we've we had uh, many other neighbours, of course, poking Germany, saying, come on, Germany, what are you going to be doing for Ukraine in terms of not just aid uh, in terms of, of euros, but also what are you doing in terms of defence material? And then now you've got an interesting story uh, where Switzerland also gets a little bit involved in all of this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very important topic now in Switzerland. Uh, Swiss neutrality has become under pressure since the beginning of the war in, in February in particular. Also regarding the, 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 um, the protests in Iran, but first maybe uh, Ukraine. The problem is that Switzerland as a neutral country is bound by the uh, Hague Agreement uh, of 1907. You have to follow some laws, uh, some rules as a neutral country. Among them, you don't provide uh, uh, countries that are in war with weapons. Uh, however, uh, Switzerland has sold ammunition for the Shepard uh, tank, uh, the German Shepard tank, to Germany. Uh, the, the, the ammunition was produced in Switzerland, made in Switzerland. And now the Germans want to give this ammunition to Ukraine because they are running out of ammunition. It's, it's a, a air defense system, this Shepard tank. And then now they 
there is a contract between Switzerland and Germany that they are not allowed to resell their munition. And so that's now the big discussion. As a as a neutral country, you are not allowed not allowed to 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 sell weapons to to a, a, a war country. However, basically, you are not bound to 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 tell other countries what they have to do with with, with their ammunition that is paid and, and and bought basically however there is a contract and within this contract uh, it it says that germany is not allowed to to resell this uh, this ammunition to green and now we have the the, the this, we had this discussion before actually and now is uh, it, it's here again should uh, should switzerland uh, open up regarding a little bit uh, regarding their neutrality that's that's the one problem the other problem is iran uh, on the one hand switzerland has a mandate from the united states uh, as uh, to for diplomatic contacts uh, with iran yeah i mean the swiss embassy is, re- represents of course all of the interests of the united states exactly. as it does in many other countries as well on, on the other hand you have the, the human rights we have these protests now and uh, so uh, lots of people say the Swiss uh, foreign minister should uh, declare that they, are, they, 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 they don't accept this and so they are in, in dilemma. But the, the most important question right now, I think, is this question of this ammunition. And, and there Switzerland has to find a way to, to, to allow the Germans to, 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 to give the ammunition to Ukraine because also the Germans put pressure on Switzerland and they say we are not going uh, to buy further uh, weaponry ammunition Switzerland, if you don't let us do this. Mm. Uh, just uh, maybe, uh, Emily, from your side, of course, the non, uh, well, one of the non-Swiss around uh, the, the table uh, as well, but also looking at uh, your, your day job uh, in terms of, of course, mediation, all of these things. First, what is the mood on the street, though? Do you think that uh, given sentiments have changed? And of course, you look at just the sheer number of Ukrainians have been taken in and uh, in by Switzerland as well, uh, you see the number of flags still flying in support of, of Ukraine. Uh, do you think that the average uh, Swiss woman or man on the street uh, really cares if, yeah, these Swiss-made uh, basically bullets uh, are then supplied to, to the German anti-aircraft uh, weaponry? So I think it's a rather divisive question within Switzerland. If you walk on the streets of Zurich, I think you're more likely to meet people who would support kind of bending the rules a little bit and and, and allowing this to go ahead. But that might not be the case in in all political circles in Switzerland. And I think one of the tricky questions here with Germany is that it's really at the heart of neutrality. So if we disaggregate it a bit, the 1907 law of neutrality really pertains to military operations, no defense alliances, no support militarily to warring parties. But then there is political support, there is social support, and and that's not forbidden uh, by laws of neutrality. So again, Switzerland, as we've seen in the adoption of sanctions, for instance, has been able to play a rather active role um, and politically no longer being completely neutral or impartial in that sense. And then there have been some accusations even against that. So again, I think with this case, um, most Swiss uh, might still be relatively um, strongly in favor of being a bit orthodox when it comes to neutrality, but then being a bit more lenient when it comes to other areas of, of action, be it on the political or, or social side. Mm. I want, go, ahead, go ahead, Christian. Neutrality is still a part of the Swiss DNA. I mean, it's much more than a political instrument. The, uh, lots of people... I. Uh, over-identify maybe with, with this question of, of neutrality. And then on the other hand, you have this right-wing party, the SVP, uh, that starts uh, 
uh, has is, is about to collecting signatures for a referendum, and they uh, are in front of a very orthodox view of neutrality. And and there we have. Uh, there we are going to have even hotter discussions than we have now, I'm sure. But still, I think the the majority, the big majority, is very much in support of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, we're going to keep um, spinning the globe because, of course, uh, it is election day, or let's say part two anyway, uh, in Brazil. I'm very happy to say that our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, uh, is is joining, um, uh, joining us after a long stint, uh, of course, uh, in, in Brazil, very much following this for us. Uh, Bom dia, good morning. Bom dia, Tyler. Yes, and what an election this has been, I have to say. I've been following, you know, for about 15, 20 years, Brazilian elections. And I agree what the papers are saying, the Brazilian papers. Look at the headlines. The most tense elections in history. A fragmented country goes to vote. And I have to agree. When I was there, I felt this division so much. And it is surprising because I, I can guarantee you it wasn't. Uh, like that in previous elections. Of course, everyone had their favorites, but not this type of uh, angry division, I have to add. So, Fernando, if you uh, we look at any number of news outlets uh, this morning, and certainly the analysis running up to this, and this has been long simmering, uh, supporters of Bolsonaro saying, you know, if there is really sort of, you know, an, any question, now, and any question in terms of the results being not just on a knife edge, but even uh, a few steps further back, uh, that there is going to be violent conflict, protest, uh, really almost a call to arms uh, in, in many ways. Uh, do you think that that's just rhetoric? Or when you talk about this anger and division, does that seem real? Uh, certainly, as, as you wrote in Sao Paulo only a few weeks ago. It is hard to say, Tyler, because I do believe in the Brazilian institutions. I think our Supreme uh, Federal Court, they're trying the, their hardest. It's been an election, uh, a difficult election for them to play with. Uh, but look what happened yesterday. Yesterday was something quite bizarre that happened in the streets of Sao Paulo. A Bolsonaro ally, an MP, Carla Zambelli, she basically, there was a video with her holding a gun, threatening a man. Uh, he was a Lula supporter. Basically, you know, he said some nasty words against her, which of course is bad. Uh, but basically she had a gun and she was threatening him. So, and, and the man started running for his life. And this is, you know, one of the most uh, voted MPs in the country. I think it's quite hard for someone to imagine uh, like an MP, let's say from Switzerland or, or the UK doing something like this. And that's what you said, a call to arms. Sure, at, at points I said, oh, there might be a little exaggeration there. But even uh, if a federal MP uh, does that. So I believe there will be moments of tension. In the end, I believe in Brazilian democracy. I think it will be tense, it will be difficult. Uh, but of course, I don't think Bolsonaro can do a coup under the, the, the current state of the world. I think, you know, especially Europe, the United States, they are looking uh, at the elections of Brazil very closely. Uh, there will be no space for that. But of course, there will be some a very tense few days ahead in case Bolsonaro loses. I mean, he can still win. The polls are very uh, narrow. Lula, according to the latest polls, is between 52 and 54, and Bolsonaro between 46 and 48. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, uh, our senior correspondent, uh, and of course, always our keen Brazil watcher. Uh, you're going to have a busy day uh, on the airwaves uh, and, and busy fingers uh, as well, of course, filing for us. Uh, thank you very much for that. Just 
gone a little bit adrift of uh, 10.30 here in Zurich, 9.30 back in London, which means it's time for Emma Nelson and the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The number of people killed in a crush in the South Korean capital of Seoul has risen to 153, with more than 150 people injured. It happened as huge crowds gathered in a popular nightlife area to celebrate Halloween. Most victims were teenagers and adults in their 20s. The US President Joe Biden has condemned Russia's decision to halt a deal that allows Ukraine to export grain from its Black Sea ports. Washington has accused Moscow of weaponizing food. Voting has begun in the second round of Brazil's presidential elections. The veteran left-wing politician Lula da Silva goes into the runoff with a slender lead over the right-wing populist Jair Bolsonaro. A Swiss railway company has claimed a record for the world's longest passenger train. The Raetian Railway Company ran the 1.9-kilometre-long train, composed of 100 coaches, along a designated UNESCO World Heritage Site from Preda to Bergun. And a town in Wales that has been overrun by feral goats since the early days of the coronavirus pandemic has formed a task force to address the problem. The number of Kashmiri goats in Llandidno skyrocketed when COVID restrictions made it impossible to organise contraception injections and the goats had a baby boom. They can now be found standing on roofs, snacking on people's hedges, sleeping in bus shelters and fighting in the supermarket car park. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. I mean, who needs to watch long Swiss trains <laughs> when you can head to, to Wales uh, and watch goats headbutting uh, in the parking lot of... I don't know what Lidl or uh, I don't know what the one of the main chains would be, but anyway, doesn't doesn't matter. It sounds like a fine day out. You're going to need a Gelenderwagen to sort of cope with you know rocking up to do your local shop. You don't know what state your car's going to be in by the time it's finished with all the fighting. No, absolutely. Uh, but uh, I always have to ask: Are there images of yes. this? Is it sort of the random goat up the tree or on a roof? Or it's, it's not random. There's a lot of them. There really is a lot of them. And, and there are these delightful pictures. Well, delightful for us because there's a goat sticking its head out of a hedge and a goat on someone's roof and a goat asleep in a bus shelter. Um, I will happily share these photographs with you later, Tyler. Um, and it, and it sort of gives the impression that it looks like there are more goats and people on the streets at the moment. Raises a question as well whether goat curry is going to become a big uh, prepackaged export out of Wales. I wonder whether that's why the task force has been formed. I think that's what they're up to. Evan Nelson, uh, thanks very much uh, for that. Uh, just 10.33 here in Zurich. Uh, heading now uh, to uh, Israel uh, to speak to uh, Aleph Ben. He is the editor-in-chief of that country, at least one of that country's uh, newspapers of, of record, uh, the Haaretz. Uh, Bokatov, Shalom, good morning. Good morning. So, uh, I, listen, we, we could maybe uh, span uh, all of the pages uh, of, of the paper. And, of course, I could be getting some more tips for what's going to be the great winter streaming watch uh, from Israeli television. But uh, it seems that everything points to, uh, of course, the elections uh, also also in Israel. Or could I be wrong? Uh, yes, the election is now the biggest story in Israel, for sure. On Tuesday, uh, it's the fifth election in a row since early 2019, so in, in, in less than four years, uh, it's the fifth time Israelis go to the polling stations. And the question is always the same question uh, as it was in the previous four times. Will Benjamin Netanyahu be the prime minister, or in this case, return to the, to the helm, or will he stay in opposition, and can there be a different coalition, or merely an ongoing crisis in the sixth election. 
Okay, so of course we want the, we want we want the wisdom of of, of Haretz uh, to break this down for our international uh, listenership. So maybe just well, uh, t- let's take a step back for a moment. Of course, uh, Mr. Netanyahu always a figure in, in the background and, and very much where he's pushing. But uh, how how does it how does it look, and what is the Haretz view as to how this could potentially play out? Well, the way it looks is that it's really hanging on a thread. Uh, given the very fractured nature of Israeli society, very tribal nature, uh, different groups within society have very different voting patterns, and uh, it will be decided <clears throat> by the turnout, especially of two groups of people. One is, uh, is uh, Arab citizens of Israel, who are uh, this time reluctant to vote. Uh, the parties representing them that were united in, the pre- in previous elections split up, and, and uh, at least one of them uh, is predicted not to pass the bar and enter the Knesset. So we're going to have fewer non-Jewish members in the next Knesset uh, in any event. And the other is a group of voters from uh, mostly lower-middle-class areas of Israel that traditionally vote for Likud and for, the, and for other parties, uh, uh, Likud satellites, and who are also reluctant to come to vote in the last couple of times. And uh, Netanyahu and his, and his camp have made uh, serious efforts to bring them back to the polling stations. And it remains to be seen uh, whether, that, whether they would succeed. In terms of the issues, well, Netanyahu, Netanyahu has two issues on his mind and, and the group supporting him. Uh, the main change there was that the far right, uh, party of uh, people who support uh, the annexation of West Bank territory into Israel uh, support much tougher measures against uh, against uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, against uh, Arab citizens of Israel, all kinds of legal limits on their equality and so on. Uh, that group of people, the the heirs of Meir Kahana, the the, the Jewish fascist rabbi of, of 40 years ago. They are now, uh, they, they become Itamar Bengvir, their representative, their leader, uh, become the main figure during the election campaign. Most uh, press coverage uh, was around him, and he dragged the entire right-wing camp, uh, the, the Neo camp, to support his views and to, and to make him... Uh, a needed partner in any future coalition. Now, for Netanyahu, the main issue is to call off, to find some legal loophole, to call off his corruption charges trial that is now standing in the, the Jerusalem District Court. And uh, and on this platform, the right wing wants to reform the entire judicial system and to make it less independent and more kind of a, an organ of the government than an independent arm of government that is also support to criticize or to serve as, as a check and balance against the government. The other side, led by Prime Minister Yair Lapid, is trying to keep Israel the way it was before the Netanyahu revolution. And uh, it's not easy because this is a coalition of right-wing, left-wing, Jews, Arabs together that are split over many other issues. Uh, Lapid has made... Uh, uh, I think a serious effort to convince people that he could lead the country, coming from a background of media, of being a media personality, without uh, you know uh, combat service in the military, without being high rank officer, without uh, 
without having a job as a manager in the private sector. And he did a, he did a quite effective job in the past four months as prime minister to convince people that he could be the country's leader indeed. Uh, will that be enough to get more people to keep him in power and, and, and reject Netanyahu once again? It's hard to tell. The right wing comes to the election more united uh, with, um, with uh, a clear goal to bring Netanyahu back, to reform the judiciary, and uh, to, <clears throat> to make uh, tougher, tougher measures against West Bank Palestinians. The left, the other side, is more split and, and less united. Uh, but as I said, it would be decided by the turnout. So, Aleph, just before we go, I do have to ask the question. Uh, one level is there is the level of, of fatigue. Uh, you know, when you talk about just the number of times that Israelis have, have headed to, to the polls. Yeah. If, uh, if you were to do a tour through the streets of Haifa, Tel Aviv, etc., how are people feeling about this? Well, uh, they get used to it in a way. I mean, those who are more politically inclined feel that this is their way of, of uh, trying to make a difference and, and to, to influence. Uh, there is some, there are, there are some rumors of voter apathy, especially in the Arab society, to a lesser extent among, uh, among uh, youngsters in Tel Aviv and so on, who are like, well, we're fed up with this uh, endless, and this rotary of elections. But I believe that eventually more people will come to vote, but, uh, but it's really hanging on a thread. It's really not, uh, it's really not, no pollster, no expert, nobody can give you any serious prediction. If any of the smaller left-wing parties uh, or our parties uh, fails to enter the Knesset, to reach the, to, to, make the, to make it to the bar, to enter the Knesset, then it's a clear Netanyahu victory. If everybody gets in, it might drag the country to a sixth election, which is the preferred outcome for Lapid. Actually campaigns for uh, another election, another election, in the hope that at some point, if Netanyahu fails time and again to win, the other people in the right wing at some point would tell him, well, Mr. Netanyahu, uh, please retire and, and let someone else lead the camp. But it's too early for them. And finally, just and clearly, before we go. the voters—the voters are totally supportive of Netanyahu and not any other second, second-tier politician there. Aleph, just before we go, very quickly, uh, tell us uh, for those who have not had access to the new season of Fauda, any good? Should we tune in? Uh, always. Okay. 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 <laughs> well, we're 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 we're, uh, we're sitting with uh, the, the being, problem. Being... The problem is that the problem that we see in, in the news department is that the, the news from the West Bank is is. Uh, is eclipsing Fauda this at this time. It's really, yes. it's really uh, on the verge of explosion there, or implosion, look, in any way you want to look at it. Indeed, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, Aleph Ben, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Haaretz, uh, joining us uh, this morning. We're going to go away for a very short break. When we come back, all things finish. Stay with us. Sit down with a host of inspiring designers and architects featured in Monocle's November issue. They share their thoughts on bright ideas, on everything from the future of the office to community-built public design. It's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure to make people feel like, I want to stay here, I want to stay invested here. In the affairs pages, we visit the people and places weaning Europe off fossil fuels. 
from a booming solar industry in Morocco to an off-grid village in Germany. Elsewhere, it's lights, camera, action in Mexico, where the global streaming wars are heating up and full steam ahead at the world's largest rail fair in Berlin. Order your copy of Monocle's November issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Just gone at 10.43 uh, here in Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm here with Christoph Munger, the uh, foreign editor uh, for the Tagus Anzeiger. Uh, also, Emily Isahau, of course, uh, a regular voice uh, around the table uh, and a good hand at all things mediation related uh, from Eteha. Uh, great to have both of you here. Uh, Emily, you had uh, a number of stories uh, that you, of course, promote at the top of the program uh, <laughs> that they point to the far side of uh, the Baltic. Which one uh, do you want to start with? Um, so let's start with uh, Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson's visit to Helsinki earlier this week. Of course, there's a tradition um, among Swedish and Finnish Prime Ministers. The first visit is always across the Baltic Sea, um, a courtesy visit. And of course, uh, the main purpose is to establish cordial neighborly working relations to very closely tight-knit countries so that's important on the uh, substantive agenda of course support continued support for ukraine featured on the agenda the energy crisis eu matters but interesting enough also nato and this has uh, broader implications beyond just finland and sweden there seems to be some uh, movement on uh, the ratification process there are two countries remaining hungary um, and turkey hungary is expected to ratify um, the accession protocols hopefully in december and Turkey has been um, the tricky case uh, up to this point. Um, but Ulf Kristersson, the Swedish Prime Minister, has made this his top priority as Prime Minister to get Sweden and Finland into NATO. And he's t- about to travel to Turkey in November. And it seems um, also the American National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was in Turkey recently. There's potentially some movement on the fighter jets and their cells by the US and again, so some positive developments there, at least according to the Nordic media after this prime ministerial meeting. Um, the second uh, interesting piece of news from um, the Nordic countries, Finland and Sweden, earlier this week was indeed the question of um, feminist foreign policy. So we all know Sweden launched this back in 2014 and it's since been taken up by a number of other countries. Spain, Canada, Mexico, Germany, France and Chile all have proclaimed that their foreign policy is of feminist nature, um, formally speaking at least. Um, but the new uh, government in Sweden has decided to do away with this um, Um, The foreign minister, Tobias Bildström, very uh, loudly saying that it's a misnomer. It doesn't mean much as a label, Uh, but very, I would say, ironically and perhaps deliberately, um, his counterpart in Finland, our prime minister, Pekka Havista, just one week after Sweden's appointment or decision, announced that they would host a conference in Helsinki precisely on this topic to understand what is feminist foreign policy, what is the importance of it, what are some of the core pillars of it in terms of rights, representation, resources. Um, So I think this was a bit of a snub uh, from Finland vis-a-vis their colleagues and on on the other side of the Baltic Sea. But on the positive side, I think if anything, uh, positive things can come out of this to really specify what it is it, what is feminist foreign policy beyond the labels. 
Do you think part of it is also a bit complex, of course, uh, off the back of the, the recent election? Uh, I was speaking to some Swedes recently who were saying, maybe not when it comes to feminist foreign policy, but there is this disconnect uh, right now because, of course, there is one thing which, of course, Brand Sweden uh, is, is famous for, uh, and that is the advancement of, of women's rights and equality on all levels. And yet, of course, with... Yeah, a migration wave. You have at the same time uh, a lot of values that have been brought into Sweden, which are also tolerated uh, as well. So if we think about childhood brides, uh, what you know, many stories about, of course, people going overseas in the summers, families returning, and and this le- and that the, there is sort of an acceptance. Well, this is this is their culture in our country. So this notion, well, maybe we shouldn't be telling the world what to do um, when we don't have everything sorted out in Sweden anymore. And I'm wondering if that plays into it slightly as well, just being pragmatic Swedes. It definitely plays into it. And, and there have been some instances with the previous foreign ministers, say in the case of Saudi Arabia, um, that it led to uh, very problematic diplomatic quarrels between Sweden and its partners around the world. But of course, the current Swedish government has immigration policy and domestic uh, security at the top of its agenda uh, on top of NATO. And one third of the government program is dedicated to these issues. And, and one of the interesting clauses to the point, Tyler, you're making is that their new crown for revocation of citizenship or permanent residency in Sweden that are in the works. And some of it is something akin to a morality police in in, in Sweden. So if you misbehave in a way that's not in line with Swedish culture, your citizenship or a permit, um, a residence permit might be revoked in the future. Again, the details need to be um, sought out. But in fact, I I think they very much want to focus on domestic affairs and not come across as condescending vis-a-vis other countries. Indeed. Uh, why don't we stay in the region as well? And uh, we should probably uh, bring in uh, maybe another Finn because uh, we don't have enough of them uh, around uh, the table uh, and on the airwaves. Uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, our correspondent uh, in the Nordics, uh, Petri Burstov, uh, is is there. Hiva Hormenta, good morning. Hiva Hormenta, Tyler and other people in the studio. Happy to be uh, one of the many Finns <laughs> on this show. So greetings from the Helsinki Book Fair um, actually, Emily might remember this uh, book fair. I'm, I'm currently kind of looking at several dozens of stands, actually, just full of books and, and offers on books. And, and um, I mean, safe to say, probably tens of thousands of uh, visitors um, at, the, at the Helsinki fairgrounds. And just tell us, set this book fair up, because you're talking about a... a, a, a rather contained market. I'm being using diplomatic language. Uh, of course, Finnish is not the most spoken language uh, in, in the world. Of course, it does have pockets uh, here and there, but nevertheless, a very literary country at the same time. Uh, we can point to certainly probably one of the, the best uh, bookstores uh, in, in Europe, uh, the, the, the Stockman Academic Bookstore, maybe not as good as it used to be, but a, a temple of great architecture from Oliver Alto as well. So is this a B2C fair or is this a B2B fair? Uh, just uh, tell us, Petri. It's very much uh, a B2C affair. It's very much aimed um, at the general public. Uh, and that's, I think, how it differs from the likes of the Frankfurt Book Fair, for example. So, you know, it's not an industry event. It's not where, you, where publishers strike deals about, uh, you know, translation rights and so on. It's very much where the general public comes. I think they had pre-pandemic, they had about 100,000 visitors over a few days. Um, and, and I think it's set to grow again 
this year. So it's, it's very much where the general public comes and purchases books. You know, I just, I, before coming on air, I, I had a chat with uh, some of the largest publishers in the country, so Ottawa, um, Venice, Ödestrom, and, and the like. And they all said that, you know, this is, one, this is one of the biggest events in terms of sales for them. I mean, it's comparable to how much they sell over Christmas. And, and it's just a, you know, three to four day event. So, so it's quite interesting. As, as you said in the beginning, you know, uh, since, Finnish as a language not very widely spoken, but Finns are amongst the most avid readers in, in Europe, actually. You know, everybody knows the, the wide uh, library network that Finland has. Um, and that really, uh, really shows here, you know, and it, it's very much a local event. You know, it's not an international book fair. It's, all the books here are either in Finnish or, or Swedish. Uh, but I, what I like about it is just it shows, it kind of shows how vibrant the, uh, the, the book scene uh, and the publishing scene in, in Finland is. So, Petri, it's we, we have Emily here. Uh, he's, you know, of course, as you said, you know, this is the fair obviously does well because Christmas is not that far uh, away. So maybe, Emily, Petri's there. Anything you're looking for? Maybe you can give him a little bit of a brief of what you'd like to sort of, you know, put under the tree, put in the stockings. Maybe let uh, Petri know. No, exactly. So I actually, to your point, Tyler, earlier that Finnish literature is primarily geared towards a Finnish audience, but there have been increasing Finnish authors that have made it abroad in also German speaking markets, Sophie Oxen and Python Stavocci as, as two examples. And I've been giving their books as Christmas gifts here in Zurich to my Swiss uh, friends. So any kind of upcoming uh, translated Finnish authors you might recommend as a Christmas gift um, to colleagues here in Switzerland. Petri, what do you see? Yeah, so Sophie Oxen, of course, there. I think she's going to give a give a talk uh, any any time now. She, I actually heard her uh, debate Finnish Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto earlier um, about whether Finland had been too naive about Russia in the past. So um, I think Sophie has a new book coming out. Then uh, uh, the public broadcaster Ules, um, former uh, uh, Russia correspondent Justin Krunval, is also here. I think she has a new book out about about uh, about Russia. So those would be. Those would be my 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 two top uh, picks for for Emily. I'm, I'm sure again I have some space in my monocle tote bag. I have two with them, and I'm going to fill them fill them. But I have some space for Emily. I want to ask both of you as Finns. So as you said, you know, there's you know, on, on one side you have a very good foundation. I mean, Pat, you just mentioning Ulle, of course, the state broadcaster. Uh, I think the last state broadcaster uh, that still does the news in Latin, uh, which is amazing. Uh, and uh, or do they do not, not on, they do it online now? Or is, exactly, yeah. I think they cut it. They took years it off the main, this was a the main bulletin. Yeah. But this, it, it's when you look at uh, again for a small nation how much they do in terms of international broadcasting, other languages, etc., as much as also speaking to New Finland at the same time. It's it's quite remarkable. So we can agree, great uh, foundation uh, that, that exists there. Do you feel as well that maybe sometimes, though, a great Finnish author doesn't travel uh, as well internationally, where we speak about also this country's relationship with Russia? Uh, should Finland be having a, a bigger voice? And Emily, I'll start with start with you. Certainly, there's some kind of contextual idiosyncrasies that might not translate well, might not travel well from a Finnish kind of cultural standpoint. To You're special people. I mean, we can, <laughs> we, we, we can agree that, can't we? Definitely on the quirky, yeah. slightly odd end of the spectrum, I, yeah. I, would, I would definitely agree. Uh, but no, I think, and, and again, as, as Sophie Oksanen or Satovji Paitim um, are great examples of that. 
interesting stories. Finland is also globalized, so both of them actually have an immigrant background writing in Finnish. Um, stories that travel extremely well, be it to the Balkans, be it to Germany, or actually stateside as well. I think they both had um, a good readership in, in, in Finland or in, in the US. Uh, but one additional thing I think what makes Finns a, a rather good readership is actually Donald Duck, interesting enough, I think. And it's a true story. I think Finns have one of the highest per capita readerships of the Donald Duck, which is written in very good Finnish kind of full sentences. Um, so most Finnish families subscribe to it and every Wednesday, Wednesday siblings are fighting who gets to read it first. So you really kind of taught to read from a very early age on. Okay, Petra, you're not here around uh, the studio here in Zurich, but you should see Christoph's face right right now. Christoph, what, 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 what is your face saying about Donald Duck and, and his full his full Finnish sentences? I, I've, I've never heard of that, but that's basically a very good idea, actually, I think, yeah, that, that you get the, the children to, to read something. And uh, I mean, Finland has become very... There's much more light shed on Finland now after the beginning of the the war in Ukraine, of course, and in particular also in Switzerland, because Finland is also uh, a neutral country, but they have an other understanding of neutrality as Switzerland, as I mentioned before. And so we we look very closely what the Finns are doing. Uh, They have a very long border with Russia. They have to behave differently than Switzerland. But uh, it's very interesting. I've I've been up to Finland a couple of times and I mean, I don't understand anything, but my my wife actually studied in in Helsinki. And so uh, we have some links there and it's very interesting. I like to be there, actually. Uh, Petri, uh, maybe just uh, if we were picking up, uh, yeah, Helsing and Sonomat, anything else making news other than books, books, books today? I think today it's, it's mostly about books, 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 and books, and then how busy the police were last night with all the with all the Halloween parties. So I think those are the two news. But I, speaking of Donald Duck, actually, I think Donald Duck is here at the fair because I mean that's one great thing about this fair. Also, you I mean, mean the, I, the you real know, the real Donald Duck? This is this is also this is breaking news if the real Donald Duck is in Helsinki. Absolutely, the real Donald Duck. Duck as, just like we have the real Santa Claus and all the others are are, are fake, as you know. So this, you know, it's 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 also for. As I said, it's for the general public. So I've, I see a lot of kids here too, um, and there's programming uh, also for kids, and, and they sell a lot of kids. In fact, I'm, I'm actually just looking at the Donald Duck book right now, <laughs> kind of like 10 meters uh, ahead of me. So you know, <laughs> nice, uh, nice to pick up on that. <laughs> Wait, and is this is this a new release from Donald Duck? Like he hasn't bought enough books already? No, I think this is like the best bestsellers uh, over the years. I, I, I think I, I need to go and buy that actually. Okay, well, just before you go, before you leave, you, you, you gave us a good segue with Santa Claus. Uh, and, and of course, uh, as this being Monocle in a world of authenticity, we only work with real Santa. Uh, we don't, we're not into any of that Norwegian or Canadian nonsense. Uh, we only want the real deal. So Santa is going to be making uh, an appearance. We were able to get him to, uh, to come to London again uh, this year. Do you sort of feel Santa season also really uh, building up? Because of course, Santa really is Finland's probably one of your most important uh, diplomats as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was actually I was in uh, Santa's hometown of Rovaniemi. I think it was two weeks ago. And I mean, I could I could already tell it was the snow hadn't fallen yet. I think it's falling about next week, I, I would guess. But, you know, I could already tell that the city was gearing up for the tourist season. You know, I, I saw Christmas decorations and Santa, Santa decorations being, being hung up. And, and, and um, yeah, he is such a key cultural export, export for us. I remember we did a short bit uh, on, online here about uh, they found the St. Nicholas uh, grave in, in Turkey. And, you know, um, I think it was Andrew Muller who asked, hey, is this a big news in Finland? I didn't find anything. 
on that in Finland. So, you know, we, we're just, we know that the, the real Santa is here and we don't, we don't really care what the others say. I actually sort of raised also that's another diplomatic incident. Did the Turks just say this because of also NATO accession as well, just to annoy, annoy the Finns? <laughs> yeah, it must be related to that. <laughs> uh, listen, we're going to have to uh, leave it there. Uh, Kitos, very, very uh, good to speak. Go back and, uh, to the fair and, uh, and let us know if you get that Donald Duck book. Thank you, Kitos. Thank you very much. Uh, this almost uh, brings us to the end of the program. I should say, though, that uh, Christmas market season is upon us. Uh, and so uh, for our listeners, uh, if you're going to be uh, anywhere in the neighborhood uh, near London uh, or, or Zurich, uh, Zurich is going to be uh, on the 3rd and 4th uh, of December here at Dufostrasse. So having uh, our Christmas event, who knows, maybe we'll see if Santa's had a cancellation uh, and he can show up here. The problem is when we do it in London, there's also there's reindeer and, and, and many other things. Uh, but Santa will be in London uh, on on the 10th and 11th for our Christmas uh, market. So, uh, yes, gentlemen, also, if you want to join in London, uh, please, please do. Thank you. Uh, that uh, brings us uh, to the end of uh, today's program. Thanks to Emily, so, uh, also Christoph Munger for the Tagus Anzeiger. Uh, also, Aleph Ben, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Fiona Wilson uh, for joining us. Desiree Venley, of course, uh, was looking after the sound here. Emma Nelson back in London. And, of course, Nora Hull uh, looking after audio, of course, back at Base London. I'm Tyler Brule. Monocle on Sunday is back next week, but I'll be in the U.S. See you then.